This is exactly right. Forgive me for interrupting. I'm Bridger Weiniger, host of I Said No Gifts on Exactly Right. Each week, I invite my favorite people in comedy over to chat, and they always bring a gift. We're coming up on our 200th episode, and every episode is a gem. I have welcomed all kinds of great guests, including Cola Scola, Bowen Yang, Robbie Hoffman. It goes on and on and on. And you don't want to miss the 200th episode with the great Maria Bamford. What does she bring me? Find out April 25th. New episodes every Thursday. Follow I Said No Gifts wherever you get your podcasts. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. They begin to release their wildly conflicting accounts about what had occurred, and they're hoping to save their lives, because if they don't tell a convincing tale, they could be hanged. And so this unleashes this great war over the truth. Here these men have waged the war against the elements, and now they're going to wage this war over the truth. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, and the co-host of the podcast, Buried Bones on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. I love a tale set on the high seas. You can't beat a twisty story about an 18th century mutiny and survival and then conflicting accounts. Author David Grant has written about the epic, harrowing saga of a ship and its crew in a book called The Wager, a tale of shipwreck, mutiny, and murder. Let's jump into the story of The Wager and what its mission was, where we are in time. So... In 1739, an imperial war had broken out between Great Britain and its imperial rival, Spain. And the wager, the ship, had received orders to set sail with a squadron of several other warships on a secret mission to try to capture a Spanish galleon filled with so much treasure was known as the prize of all the oceans. Believe it or not, that was part of the mission. It had a real whiff of piracy about it, even though it was a naval mission and it was part of the war. So that was the original order and kind of what begins this misadventure in many ways. So how many crewmen are we talking about and how many officers? What's the hierarchy of the ship as far as you knew it? Yeah, so in the squadron entirely, there are five warships, including the Wager. There's a scouting sloop, a smaller ship, and there are two tiny cargo ships uh, that are going to accompany, that are supposed to accompany the expedition partway. Altogether in the squadron, it would require nearly 2,000 men and boys to man these ships. And these ships were really very complex. They were kind of the engineering marvels of their time, and so they required skilled men. You know, even before the voyage began, the seeds of its destruction were planted. The wager, which was the smallest of the warship, it needed about 250 men, uh, which was nearly double the number it was designed to carry. Hmm. But the British Navy had exhausted its supply of volunteers, and it did not have uh, conscription back then. So what it did was it sent out these press gangs to towns and cities and ports, and they would eyeball it. 
people who would eyeball men and boys. And they basically say, well, you got this round hat, you got a little checkered shirt. They would even inspect your fingertips to see if you had a little tar on them because tar was used on ships to make everything water resistant. And if they thought so, well, then they would just seize you and in effect kidnap you and drag you unwillingly on a voyage that might last two to three years. You know, no, no chance to say goodbye or hello to your family. Even then, the Admiralty was sure to men for this squadron. So it took the extreme step of rounding up 500 soldiers from a retirement home. You know, you have to have a gallows humor because it's just so dark. I mean, you rounded up these pensioners who were in their 60s and 70s. Uh, many were missing an assortment of limbs and some were so sick they had to be lifted on stretchers on, onto these vessels. So that was the beginning. That's how it all began. From what I know about ships in the 1700s, they were often filled with the people you're describing. It could be criminals, people off the street. You know, they were trying to supply the ships with everyone and everything they possibly could. The officers sometimes were very unprepared and undertrained and maybe were just there because, you know, they were part of high society and this would be an honor to head the ship. Is that the case with the squadron? Do we have people who really don't belong in high positions? A good question. The head of the expedition, who had not ever led an expedition or done anything of this sort, turns out to be extraordinarily competent and capable, more than competent. He has that mysterious qualities that make a great commander, which is he was not only a master of the wooden world of the ship, but he was a master of himself. But on these ships, you sometimes had aristocratic dandies who would be officers. Mm -hmm. For example, the wager would eventually have a captain who had a very kind of volatile, tempestuous personality. And one of the things that makes these ships so interesting is that they really were these kind of odd, eclectic, floating civilization. So you would have these officers who tended to come from the aristocracy and the nobility. Many of them were quite well educated. You might have dandies. You'd have city paupers. You'd have these press people on the ship unwillingly. You'd have free black seamen. And they're all kind of thrown together onto one of these ships. Mm. And they have to be somehow molded into a band of brothers. So how well does the trip go until it doesn't go well? Is everybody getting along? Are they staying on their mission? Are they chasing down the Spanish vessels the way they're supposed to? The biggest challenge is it takes them a long time to get out of the dockyards in England because as sophisticated as these ships are uh, with their lethal instruments, because these were made for gun battles and also meant to be the home for all these sailors living together in close quarters, they were also made of very perishable materials, which was wood. And so the ships have been kind of laid up on Rotten Row for months and months and months, waiting to finally get off. And the wager is a little bit the ugly duckling, uh, the runt of the expedition of the warships, because it had not been born for battle. It was remade from a merchant ship into a warship. Hmm. It was the lowest ranking warship. It was the six rate, which meant it had 28 cannons. It was a little tubby and it kind of doubled as a store ship for the expedition. But eventually they finally set off nearly a year after they were supposed to. And they get across the Atlantic, but almost immediately everything begins to go wrong. I mean, the ships are working and functioning and the crews are working and functioning, but pretty soon they find they're being chased by a Spanish armada that is, you know, larger than their own squadron. So they're trying to outrun it. And then they have to sail around Cape Horn and Cape Horn is at the very tip of South America because their, their mission is to sail around Cape Horn and then into the Pacific and try to intercept the galleon off the coast of the Philippines. And 
Cape Horn, the seas around Cape Horn are among the most violent in the world. It is the one place on earth where the seas travel 13,000 miles uninterrupted. They never get blocked by land. And so because of that, they just accumulate enormous force. A Cape Horn roller wave could dwarf a 90-foot mass. There are the strongest currents on Earth as they funnel into this passageway between the tip of South America and Antarctica. And then there are the winds which frequently accelerate to hurricane force. Herman Melville, who would later make the journey around the Horn, compared it to a descent into hell in Dante's Inferno. <laughs> dramatic. <laughs> yes, very dramatic. And as Melville is, nobody wrote about the sea better. And so immediately they are just battered by these storms day and night, the ships breaking apart, the sails blowing out. And at that very point, when they're going to need every person on board these ships, if they're going to have any chance to persevere, what happens? They begin to suffer from a mysterious illness. I've read about this illness and it sounds just terrible. What is this? First, they suffer from typhus um, and have high fevers and several of them die. And then when they reach Cape Horn, they are suffering from a new illness, the great enigma of the sea, which was scurvy. And their teeth begins to fall out and their hair falls out and their eyes bulge. And even the cartilage that seemed to glue together their bones is coming undone. There was one seaman in one of the accounts describes he had fractured a limb in a battle 50 years earlier fighting in war. And of course, the fracture had long since healed, but suddenly... With this disease, it suddenly refractures in the very same place. And something I didn't realize about scurvy is that it can affect the senses. And one of the seamen described how the disease got into our brains and we went raving mad. Mm. What they didn't know then was that the cure was so simple, that they were suffering from a vitamin C deficiency on the ships because they didn't bring fruit and vegetables, they didn't have refrigeration, and that the cure had actually been right within the reach when they had stopped at Brazil before they came around the Cape Horn. There were actually limes on this island. And uh, of course, later in the century, when the British Navy discovers that scurvy could be cured with, with limes, they would carry limes on their ships. And of course, British seamen became known as limeys. But back then, they didn't know that. And this expedition suffered what is considered one of the worst scurvy outbreaks in maritime history. And hundreds and hundreds of members of this expedition perished. Their bodies were just thrown overboard unceremoniously. And is this also the time period when they were eating bad meat in the tin cans? Yeah, by then, you know, the foods have started to rot. The bread, again, you don't have refrigeration on these ships. So you, these little biscuits they have are so hard and they're kind of worm-eaten. And when you when they would hit them, they would describe hitting them you know, against the table and they would just kind of disintegrate into dust. Some of the meat had spoiled uh, on the expedition. So they are suffering from poor provisions. And, you know, on top of that, when they're around Cape Horn, it's so rough. The seas are so bad. They can't really even use the stove. So they often have to eat raw meat. So the wager and its ships are battered and the men are are dying and battered and dead bodies are thrown overboard. But then it gets worse. When does it get worse? (laughs) As if we can't get worse. Uh, So the ships are desperate to stay together around Cape Horn because they know if they separate, there'll be no one there to rescue them if something happens. So what do they do? You know, it's kind of interesting. You learn these things like, how did you communicate back then? Well, you didn't have iPhones. You didn't have have any telecommunications or whatever. So what they would do is they would fire blanks in their cannons. So they're firing their cannons repeatedly to signal their location, but eventually the blasts get drowned out and all the ships scatter in the storm. They're all separated. And the wager was a new commander, relatively new commander, a man named David Sheep. 
finds himself and his ship all alone and left to their own destiny. And he was recently promoted to be captain. He had previously been a lieutenant. He was somebody who, back on land, had kind of been plagued by debts and frustration and chased by creditors. But on a ship, he had always found refuge. And on this expedition, he had finally attained what he had always just kind of obsessively longed for, which was this chance to captain his own warship. So he's determined to prove himself as this new captain. And he does manage to steer the wager around Cape Horn. And he wants to meet at a predetermined rendezvous point that they had in case they were ever separated off the coast of Chile. But he and the other seamen on the wager are suffering from another huge challenge, which is they don't know precisely where they are on the map. They could determine their latitude by reading the stars, but they had no way of knowing their longitude because that would require a reliable clock and they hadn't yet been invented. Hmm. And so they're forced to rely on what was called dead reckoning, which is essentially informed guesswork and a leap of faith. And as the wager is coming up the coast to Chile off Patagonia through the Pacific, their longitude, their estimation of their longitude turns out not only to be wrong, but wrong by hundreds of miles. And they suddenly find themselves trapped in a gulf known as a gulf of the penas, which translates as the gulf of sorrows, or some seamen would translate it as the gulf of pain. Hmm. And there the wager suddenly hits a submerged rock. You talk about in the book how blindly they would sail. Tell me how they would figure out the depth, because I thought that was interesting. Yeah, well, even everything. I mean, they would do soundings by dropping ropes with weights to try to figure out depths. And then they would try to measure their speed by having knots in the rope. And then they would count the knots, which is why in nautical miles, they refer to knots. You know, Mm -hmm. so many of these things derive from the sea, the way they counted their speed. And these were kind of rough estimations. And, you know, instead of clocks, they had hourglasses. So, um, you know, everything they had to do was often guesstimating. So they were sailing partially blind. So they hit this submerged rock. The wager was about 123 feet, a three-masted ship, as were other uh, warships. And what's really important to understand is that these were buoyant castles. They were the homes for these seamen. You know, this is where they were going to live for years at a time. And most seamen back then didn't know how to swim. So you could imagine their terror. They hit this submerged rock in a part of the world none of them have ever been to. They have no idea where they are exactly. The rudder shatters. A two-ton anchor, imagine the weight of that. A two-ton anchor falls. It rattles, breaks loose. It falls and it plunges through the hull, leaving a hole. And there the ship is kind of teetering for a moment. And then another mountainous wave comes and it sweeps the wager off these rocks And the ship is careening through this gulf and through this minefield of rocks with no rudder to steer by, with water surging into the hole, through the hole, until at last it crashes into a cluster of rocks. And there the ship finally begins to completely rip apart. The planks are shattering, the decks are caving in, cabins are collapsing, water is surging through the bottom of the hull, rats are scurrying upward. The seamen who had been suffering from scurvy, who were below in their hammocks and were unable to get out in time, they drowned. Hmm. But the ship did not yet completely sink. It became wedged between these two pillars of rocks. And so the survivors kind of climb up onto the remnants of the ship. And there they look out in the distance and through the mist, they see a desolate island. 
How do we get to the island? Are these kinds of ships equipped with buoys or dinghies or, or what? Yeah, so they didn't carry lifeboats back then, but they did carry three or four transport boats. And these were usually boats that could be rowed and they could also, you could put a little sail on them sometimes to propel them. But they were relatively small and they were really used to kind of ferry people ashore or sometimes take supplies if you were going ashore. One of the the largest of the transport boats actually is cracked and they can't use that. But they do get a couple of these small transport boats eventually off the boat and they ferry the men back and forth onto the island. And about 145 of them eventually make it to the island. Of course, that's where the real help began. So these 145 men land on this island. What do they initially see? They must just be grateful to be on land. Yeah, so at first they're hoping they might find their salvation. You know, they get to this island, the journey's been hell already, and they think, well, okay, well, maybe we got here, we're still breathing, and maybe this place will, you know, have sustenance and and a way to get home. And, you know, at first they're not even sure if they're on an island or on the mainland. That's how, how bewildered they are. But the island turns out to be windswept and barren and mountainous. The temperature hovers around freezing. They're there in the wintertime. Hmm. And it's really damp. It, it's always, there's so much precipitation. So it's always raining or sleeting. And worst of all, they could find virtually no food. There are some clams and snails that can find along a little beach head, but they soon exhaust those. They find a little sprouts of celery, which mysteriously cures their scurvy, mysteriously to them, it had some vitamin C in it. But they don't find any animals on the island. And other than there's some birds kind of flying tantalizingly off in the distance. Amazing. And they can't fish, I'm assuming. They're just not equipped. Yeah, they don't have any of the equipment for fish. And because it's so rough around there and the waves crashing, they were just shocked to discover they didn't really see any fish even close, you know, coming in ever close to the shore. So how do they survive? Are they at least able to build some sort of shelter? Yeah, so at first, um, they try to build an encampment. Captain David Chee tries to basically build an imperial outpost, and he believes they should be governed you know, by the same rules that had existed on the ship, and that the only way they're going to survive is if they maintain cohesion. Okay. <laughs> exactly. And they should be governed by the same hierarchical uh, you know, system, so he would still be in charge. Um, and they start to you know, pull together... Uh, bits of shelter. Um, and so they start to build some homes. They start to figure out how to collect some water. They are then begin to pretty, you know, ingeniously and dangerously try to do kind of a salvage operation to go out to the wreck of the wagers. It's sinking further and further into the sea wow. to see what supplies they can poke out of there and dig out of there and what provisions. So they start to collect. So they get some flour and some other provisions, a little bit of meat, um, and they set up a store tent with rations. But gradually, as they begin to starve, and they descend into these warring camps. So they are now starting to separate. Are we seeing leaders emerge on these camps? Or is David Cheap just desperately trying to stay in charge of everyone? Yeah, there are three factions. One faction, the other seamen refer to as the seceders. And they are simply like a pack of pillaging marauders who break off and roam the island threateningly committing crimes. And they're kind of like a terror to everyone. And they are kind of set apart. And then in the main encampment, there are two main factions. One faction is led by Captain Cheap and his loyal followers, though they are dwindling in number. And then there is 
a gunner from the ship named John Bulkley. We don't know what John Bulkley looked like because he could not afford to have had a portrait made of him. He came from the lower to middle classes, but he was very literate. He was a compulsive diarist who knew what he thought. Hmm. He had been in many ways the most skilled seaman on the wager, and he was an instinctive leader. But on a ship, he knew because of his station during those times of very rigid class structures, it was unlikely that he would ever be the commander of a warship. But suddenly on this island, all his skills start to manifest themselves. And he's very capable, cunning, genius. And he's kind of the most active and kind of pulling the men together, desperate to get off the island. And so the men begin to have these philosophical debates on the island, even while they are starving. You know, what is the nature of leadership? Should sheep remain the leader because he'd been their leader on ship? Or in what Bulkley described in this state of nature, did they need new rules and new regulations? And could somebody like him, who had not been from the aristocracy, suddenly become a commander in his own right? Was everyone convinced that they absolutely had to leave the island, there was no choice? Or were there a faction that just said, we're never getting off this island and we have to make the best of what we have and maybe we can figure out how to fish later? I think for the most part, they all wanted to get off the island. I mean, the seceders are kind of a crazed pack. Hmm. But for the most part, everybody is desperate to get off the island because they don't know how to survive in that place. So if they had a will to live, they wanted to find a way off. But their visions of what they should do when they get off the island fuel this kind of titanic battle between Captain Cheap and the gunner, John Bulkley. Are they going to try to use these transport boats? Is that their idea to literally sail thousands of miles to get back home? Yeah, so eventually they have a couple of the small transport boats. Uh, the carpenter, there's a carpenter on these ships, and the carpenter was actually a very talented carpenter. He's probably the most talented carpenter in the expedition. He's also John Bulkley's closest friend. And he comes up with this idea that if they could salvage what was known as the longboat, which was the larger of these transport boats, which was all kind of shattered on the mm. on the vessel, if they could salvage it, then they could try to rebuild it and expand it into a, a large enough vessel that along with the two other, couple other tiny transfer boats, they might be able to get off this island. And so for a brief moment, they're actually united around this scheme, the two factions in the main camp, working day and night to try to, you know, build this craft. But eventually, they have two very different ideas of how that vessel that is slowly emerging should be used. Captain Cheap, who is very dutiful and stubborn, is desperate almost for a bit of redemption is determined to take this craft and believes they should sail northward towards the closest Spanish settlement, who, again, they were at war with Spain at that time, and there try to seize a ship, uh, some kind of trading vessel, and to try to meet up with the leader of their own expedition, the squadron again, mm -hmm. and go on their way and continue on the expedition. Bulkley thinks this is nuts and thinks, you know, we've had enough. And this war has been a disaster and this expedition has been a disaster and it's time to just try to get home. So he comes up with a, a separate plan that's also very daring and dangerous. Um, in some ways, in terms of distance cover, it would be even more formidable. He wants to take the boat and he thinks if they sail north into the Spanish, they're just going to get decimated. So how can we as starving castaways fight the Spanish? So he wants to go south, travel southward, then through the Strait of Magellan 
which is a kind of winding passage at the tip of South America or near the tip of South America, treacherous seas, and then sail northward to Brazil. Brazil was Portuguese, so it wasn't at war with England. That whole trip, though, was some 3,000 miles. It would have been one of the longest castaway voyages ever carried out. So we have these two factions with two very different points of view. How is the tension manifested between them before we really start to break apart? Are they sabotaging each other, or is this a war of words at this point if we take out the other group of marauders? It's simmering, and it keeps kind of building. It's kind of building over time, then it might calm down a little bit, but then it's gradually simmering more and more. You know, at some points, they become so antagonized that they are sending messengers back and forth between each group. Wow. And they're only separated. I mean, I don't know the distance, 20 yards maybe, <laughs> but they, you know, some of the leaders will no longer speak. So there's something like diplomats back and forth um, and they're having kind of wars of words. And then at one point there is increasing violence and they begin to spiral into more violence. At one point, the captain who is kind of desperate to hold on to his command and sees his power dwindling around him as Bulkley stirs the men with talk. He actually uses the phrase life and liberty. And he starts to have the men sign petitions. You know, he had salvaged some paper and pens. And so there's kind of this political battle and, and a class struggle playing out on this island. The island, in many ways, became this laboratory to test the human condition hmm. under extreme circumstances. And it slowly begins to you know, reveal each person's nature, both the good and the bad. And so you see this kind of growing battle. And then at one point, Captain Cheap, fearing that one man was committing mutiny, bursts out of his tent takes his gun and places the barrel right against the man's head. And without any questions or any proceedings, he pulls the trigger. And the man had been unarmed. And for a moment, this kind of quiets things, but gradually it only increases the resentment of the other faction. And so in a way, it ends up dwindling and diminishing the captain's authority. So there are people who are moving over to Boakley's side, I'm assuming. Yes, his side is growing by the day. How are we doing with nutrition and food at this point? Because we're a couple of months into it, right? When this tension's growing. Yeah, they are starving more and more. A number of them had died uh, and kind of buried in these shallow graves on the island. You know, they had tried to come up with all sorts of ways to try to find food. They even built these kind of little rafts that they would kind of try to float around the coast, with, but really with limited success. So they're beginning to starve. It's increasing their paranoia. And no doubt the starvation is increasing. You know, starvation has not only physical effects, it has real psychological effects. I mean, it's just a gnawing pervasive force. So that's also augmenting the tensions. And the men were no doubt also suffering from hypothermia. You know, they only had scraps of clothing and it was always wet and cold. So, you know, it's a real battle for their wits at this moment. When is the next big event? So, well, what eventually happens is they begin to talk about this taboo of mutiny. Mm. And they know that a full-blown mutiny, the kind that they are contemplating, could be a hanging offense. And as they're discussing this, they eventually do decide to cross that threshold. And early one morning, a ragtag army of starving men armed with whatever tools and instruments they had burst into Captain Cheap's dwelling, and they seize him and they tie him up. 
do they have help from the marauders or is that group staying out of it? The marauders are still kind of roaming. They do eventually seek the alliance of one marauder who was a very good carpenter who could help build the ship. But for the most part, the marauders are still just pillaging, doing their own crime separately. Okay. So what happens next? They decide to tie up the captain. And the thought is, well, maybe will they bring the captain with them back to England? They think they can use the shooting that Cheap had done to justify arresting him. Cheap believes they're just using that as a justification. And ultimately, the faction led by Bulkley leaves the island. And in the most stunning development, they leave Captain Cheap behind. And it's a little bit murky about exactly what transpired to do that. But she, you know, was proud. Uh, According to Bulkley, he did not want to go back with them if he was going to remain a prisoner. But there was also unspoken and even spoken desire that if Captain Sheep came back with them, he would tell an alternative story. So by Mm -hmm. leaving Captain Sheep and his followers behind on the island, the hope is that there will be only one story to prevail if they ever make it back to England and ever have to face a court-martial. But did they leave that other transport boat for them to at least have a chance? They did, but it was all kind of broken up. There was very little expectation that they would ever get off the island and live. You know, one of the things that the other faction does throughout is they know that if they ever get back to England, they're going to likely be hauled before a military tribunal. So even while they're on the island, they had salvaged some paper and quills. And they are writing contemporaneous documents. Bulkley's keeping a diary. They're signing petitions. They are essentially trying to create contemporaneous evidence so that they can create an unassailable story of the sea that will withstand the scrutiny of a public trial. How many men are we talking about who are on this boat with Bulkley at this point? Initially, there are over 80, but some would turn back to rejoin the captain because when they realize the captain has been abandoned, they just think that's a step too far. So a small group does eventually turn back, but the rest continue on in this vessel. They are packed so tightly together that they cannot even stand. They have virtually no provisions and they begin this 3,000 mile journey. Now, we know that weather plays such a big part in these, you know, seafaring stories and the timing of it. Do they encounter terrible weather, I imagine, over this time, or is it smooth sailing? Oh, no, it's not smooth. (laughs) Of course not. (laughs) No, it's it's not smooth. The Strait of Magellan is notorious for its uh, sudden squalls. There was a reason why ships, the larger vessels back then, avoided that winding channel and chose to try to round the Cape Horn with its violent seas because the Strait of Magellan presented its own challenges. You know, they didn't have a map, but what they had was, they didn't have a reliable map or a detailed map, but what they had was an earlier account of a seaman who had gone through, a British seaman who had gone through the Strait of Magellan. Bulkley is using this to navigate by, and it's really one of the more extraordinary feats of navigation. Hmm. He's kind of reading this logbook, and then he would try to eyeball things to match them up so that he would know where they were. You know, at one point, they're going through the Strait of Magellan, and all the other crew, you know, they're starving. They have to throw people overboard. And some of the other castaways think he's gone the wrong way. And so he agrees to turn back, and he had actually been right, which only adds more time to their voyage. But on these expeditions, they were enormously challenged, and they cause men sometimes to be abandoned. Bulkley was an extremely religious person, but it raised the question, you know, is it a sin to want to live, and how far would you go to want to live? 
by the time that one boat reaches Brazil, after some 3,000 miles, there are only 29 survived, including John Bulkley, the gunner. What is the reaction when they reach Brazil? Was there even news? I mean, how would even anyone know about this wreckage to begin with? And that's a question. Why have a cover story when there's no witnesses? Well, I think the hope was there was not going to be witnesses. You know, they would have to explain why they were there, came back, and there was no captain with them and what had happened to the captain. So when they get to Brazil, though, they're initially greeted with great curiosity, and they are hailed and commended for their ingenuity and their bravery, because this was, nobody can believe that anyone made this journey in their condition in this tiny battered boat. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, it would take a long time for news to eventually reach England. I mean, you know, you're not talking about months and months and months, and it would take them a long time to head back. But eventually, uh, several of this group do return to England, are able to share their story. And at that point, there's still no news from Captain Cheap and the other faction. So there's only really one story to prevail. What is happening that we know of, of uh, David Cheap and his crew, and of course, the marauders who are left behind on the island? Some of the marauders are kind of uncontrolled and some even try to make their own escape and die. But the bulk of them, this kind of group of seceders, do end up joining up with Cheap. And uh, John Byron, the midshipman, is present. Uh, he was not a marauder, but he had decided, after a lot of soul-searching and kind of uncertainty, decided to stay with Captain Cheap, that he did, he thought it was wrong to leave him to die. And so he stays with Cheap, and there are a couple others. And they eventually kind of fix their little crafts. They try to get off the island, but they fail to. They can't get through the Gulf of Sorrows or the Gulf of Pain. And eventually they return to the island again after there's failed uh, attempts to leave it a month later, and they basically go back there to die. Um, and it's then that almost miraculously a, a group of native Patagonians arrive in a couple canoes and ultimately help save a few of the castaways, end up leading them on a long journey to Chiloé Island, which is a Spanish settlement, which is where she wanted to get to. Um, but then once they're there, they're actually taken prisoner, oh. which is what, and they end up being in prison. So months and months go on again after everything they've been through, they're put in, you know, the condemned hole. You know, it would take uh, some of them close to six years since they had left England to finally return. Byron, who had left England at the age of 16, would return at the age of 22, and he was unrecognizable to his family. Who comes back to England and what do they say once they're there six years later? So, you know, Captain Sheep emerges and Captain Sheep is burning for vengeance uh, for having been abandoned. He believes he was abandoned to die. He believes these others were, he referred to the other group as my mutineers. And he is ready for a court martial and a showdown. And I'm assuming the Crown is shocked that he's there and says, we've heard news that this happened, but there's a band of heroes who were in Brazil. And what actually happened here? Yeah, so they're summoned to go on this court-martial. Bulkley and his group are certain they're going to be hanged, and they are praying before the trial. Meanwhile, they have charged Cheap with the most serious offense possible, which was homicide. They are alleging that the captain had killed someone, which under naval regulations back then was the one charge that left no room for kind of wiggle room in terms of the punishment. It was a hanging uh, uh, offense. 
Who has the most reliable narrative here, do you think? It has to be Cheap, you would think, right? Well, Cheap had a certain standing, and he had more of the backing of the admiralty and the officers and the powers that be. And he is contending that he was kind of undermined by many of the men early on. You know, and Bulkley comes from a different station, but Bulkley has created perhaps the most persuasive story. He got back to England first. He got his story on the record first. He has a fair amount of public sympathy. So it's quite a standoff. But what really happens is, you know, these two sides are lobbing their stories back and forth to see who would win. And they both can make some valid points. But the British Empire and the authorities are listening to these stories. And they kind of seem to, you know, based on their actions, they seem to kind of come to the conclusion that, you know what, we like any of these stories. They don't make us look very good. You know, they're undercutting the central claim of the British Empire used to justify its ruthless expansion and conquest of other peoples, which is that their civilization was somehow superior to others. And yet here on this island, our officers and crew, these Supposed apostles of Western civilization, the vanguard of the empire, have behaved more like brutes than like gentlemen. And so they suddenly have an interest in maybe telling a third version and an alternative history and their own mythic tale to see. So this is a story not only about the way we tell stories to serve our self-interest, but it's also the way nations and especially empires tell stories to serve their self-interest and to preserve their powers. So how is the crown reframing the narrative of the wager at this point when you're looking at all these people who probably technically should be hanged? Yeah. So they come into the court-martial and to their surprise and pleasant surprise from their point of view, none of the defendants are actually asked about any of the alleged crimes on the island. Nothing. Instead, they're simply, the court-martial simply focuses on what it caused the wreck of the wager, you know, before they had even got to the island. And it'd be the equivalent of stopping a, a car in which the officers, you know, the police find a dead body in the trunk, but they only ask the driver about a busted taillight. <laughs> and in the end, they let everybody go. They just let everybody go free. Wow. Um, and there are no other proceedings and no other trials. And so, you know, this, because of the kind of fear of what this story said, because these stories did not make the empire look good, because it showed the kind of really in many ways disastrous nature of the war and what had transpired during the war and what had become a bloody stalemate. This became, as one British naval historian called it, the mutiny that never was. <laughs> and instead, the British Navy seizes on another story which is that one of the ships from the squadron led by Commodore George Anson, um, he was down to one ship from this big expedition that had started out with nearly 2,000 men and five warships. He's down to one warship, a ragtag group. He managed to get around the Horn and into the Pacific. And through a great deal of skill and talent on his part, he was in many ways a remarkable commander. He ends up seizing the galleon and capturing this treasure. He captures the prize of all the oceans. And that is the story that the authorities decide to tell and trumpet and share, leaving out and, you know, or overlooking or underplaying all these disasters that had taken place. And um, that's kind of the mythic tale that gets passed down. And the press doesn't get a hold of it? Or is it just totally squashed? 
You know, the press uh, initially seizes on the wager affair because it's such a scandalous truth in what it says. But eventually the story of Anson capturing the galleon is the one that will be celebrated in stories. When they return to England, they were paraded through the streets with their wagons filled with treasure. At that point at the war, thousands and thousands of people had died both you know, throughout different expeditions, it kind of become a bloody steelmate. And so there was such a longing Mm. for a victory. So here at last was news of a victory. It wasn't going to change the course of the war, nor was the treasure seized. It was only a fraction of what had been squandered and wasted on this work. Mm. Yet it gave them a story. It gave them news of a victory. That is the story that will be celebrated in sea ballads and poems and will eventually overshadow the disastrous nature of this expedition, overlooking the fact that of nearly 2,000 people gone, more than 1,300 have perished in this mission. Well, just to tie a little knot on this story, what happens with Boakley and Cheap? Do they just sort of ride off separately into the sunset and live quiet lives after this is all done? Captain Cheap, still burning with his obsessive dreams of glory, goes back to sea, Ugh. and it shows... You know, in a different world, in a different place, fate can be very cruel. And in a different way, on a different ship, on a different mission, he might have had more success. And he goes off on a ship and he helps capture actually a Spanish ship that has a large, you know, fairly large prize. And then he retires afterwards from ill health. But he's always stained. He's always remembered, if he's remembered at all, by the stain of what had happened on the island. And John Bulkley was somebody who kind of burst into history. Uh, with almost no past. You know, we don't have records of, you know, much about him before this. He kind of bursts into history. And then later he leaves and he goes to, we know he went to uh, Philadelphia into the colonies, into that hotbed, future hotbed of rebellion. And there eventually he disappears from history. If you love historical true crime stories, check out the audio versions of my books, The Ghost Club, All That Is Wicked, and American Sherlock. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our associate producer is Alex Chi. This episode was mixed by John Bradley. Curtis Heath is our composer. Artwork by Nick Toga. Executive produced by Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.